0: I want to share a couple things that the lord has put on my heart and i want to say up front that if the lord will help us today and i can communicate this then i want to give credit to what my dad's been speaking to me this week to what god has been speaking but i i my heart has been burning the last couple couple days really last week and a half and uh I read the passage this morning. It may seem a little bit like a door in space, but I'm gonna put the door there, and then I'll back up and try to fill it in, if that makes sense. But I read this passage this morning, and it spoke to me. It's Joshua 5 and 10. He says, "'On the evening of the 14th day of the month, "'while camped at Gilgal, "'on the plains of Jericho, "'the Israelites celebrated the Passover. "'The day after the Passover, that very day they ate some of the produce of the land unleavened bread and roasted grain the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land there was no longer any manna for the israelites but that year they ate of the produce of canaan so moses has died and they are about to take over Jericho. The, the, the walled city is about to fall. And this is an incredible turning point in the saga of their exodus and inheritance. Amen. They have been journeying as wanderers in the wilderness and being fed with manna from heaven, manna that they complained about numerous times. But on this particular day, it's the Passover and the next day The manna stops, and it's time for them to start really partaking of the inheritance God has been promising all this time. It's an incredible, special turning point in their history. They ate the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? The man replied, Neither, but, I, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And it completely changes, and he goes on to talk about something else. That's the entirety of the account of this encounter. Amen. Amen. He's the commander of the Lord's army. He has his sword drawn. They're about to enter the promised land. There's two ways you can look at that, that angel. Probably Gabriel, I don't know. But there's two ways you can look at that angel. You can say that his sword was drawn because he's the commander of the Lord's army and he's there to to defeat Jericho, which God certainly did by the power of the Spirit, amen? And the other way you can look at it which no doubt Joshua must have felt a little bit of this way, is that there's no war engaged right in the moment. He's standing there before Joshua, and his sword is drawn. And there's a threat inherent in that drawn sword. There's a threat to Joshua. And the message is to Joshua, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. This turning point in the history of Israel, this turning point in your life. This battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. And you are standing amidst eternal ways. You are standing at the crossroads of eternity. And I am here to fight for you, but I am also here as a grave threat to you. If you don't take off whatever separates you from vulnerability to the holiness and the awe of what God is doing in this place. Amen. So the angel represents an incredible source of power and victory, but he also represents a threat and a grave warning to Joshua that he better stay in right attitude and perspective toward what God is doing and toward God himself and toward the place that God has called him to. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, open our eyes, God, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, before we go into that in any more detail, I want to ask you a question. We know that this world, because it's fallen and because people are not motivated by love, they are not they're not good in their innermost being, but they're flawed. We know that in this world it would be a terrible thing if all external government were taken out of the way. Amen. You just imagine if if someone walked into this walked through that door with a pale look on their face and came up here and said, We've just gotten word that the United States government that the president of the United States government has fled to Africa in exile, and they've abandoned their posts, and all the way down to the state and local levels, all government officials have left, the police force has disbanded, and we are left alone. That is exactly what happened in France when the Nazis were taking over. The French government had a plan to leave by motorcade to, to to extract the entire French government by motorcade, and the hour they departed Paris, they were having a press conference in which they were touting these victories that they weren't really having, and they were telling the entire country, we are going to fight to the bitter end, and the plan was already perfectly in place. They were going to be gone. Amen. And they finished the, the There were U.S. journalists there. They finished the press conference, and they literally got in their their motorcade and and left the country. And within two hours, the French people knew that they had no government and that the Nazis were marching into Paris. Just like that. What kind of feeling would that leave you if you thought that what I just described, if that was the case, would that give you a, a feeling of encouragement, comfort, reassurance why would you be worried about your brothers and sisters huh would you be well would you be worried would you see your brothers and sisters as the threat that caused you worry no but there are some out there who are not our brothers and sisters would you agree and I think we would all be a little bit worried we know that we just know intuitively that there is not that if there's not an external restraint on this world and the fallen nature, people are going to start killing each other. Bad things are going to start happening, to put it simply, very fast. Amen? So we accept and we accede to the truth that in this world there is a legitimate place for government. Now I ask you, what is the power by which that government rules in its legitimate place. Huh? Force. And what is force? I mean, they're not actually forcing everybody. It's, it's more the threat of force, right? Wouldn't you agree? Everything we've read, everything we've studied, Max Weber, all the rest, amen. The threat of force is what keeps evil in check. But the threat of force is a countervailing power that in itself does not represent one of God's good attributes, does it? No, it doesn't. What does the threat of force represent? The fear of death, which is whose power? Satan's power. Amen. So ultimately, God allows a system that is vanishing away, But he allows a system that has been temporarily influenced by the Judaic law to hold in check those people who have no internal check of the Holy Spirit. And he allows the the power of the enemy to be used against them to hold them in check. Amen? Even in the church when someone refuses to receive the, the order and the power of God... As in, the, as in the body, what does Paul say to do with such a person? Turn such a one over to the state, <laughs> to Satan is what he says. But the state is who really represents that power of the threat of death, isn't it? And it's a legitimate, it has a legitimate role in doing so. It does not bear the sword in vain. Amen? And when we put ourselves into the domain of Satan then we incur the just punishment of that same power on ourselves. Does that make sense? So that is the government of this world, and we recognize its place and its need in a fallen society, in a fallen world. Amen? Now, in the ninth chapter of Isaiah, he says says something incredible. Let me just go there and read it, if you don't mind. And I'm going to get back to that other piece, but I want to... I want to build a little bit of groundwork here, if you'll bear with me. And if if I say something confusing or mistaken, please correct me. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You will increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So he says something is going to happen. The people who walk in darkness are going to see a great light. Amen? And he says there's going to be a joy. There's going to be a gladness that comes upon people. And he says it's going to be like the gladness when you conquer and you're dividing up the spoils of what you conquered. But he's going to put a big qualifier in there. They shall be glad with the gladness of harvest as when men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for fire. He says, the joy is going to be like dividing spoil, but the boot of the warrior And the cloak of war, it's going to be fuel for fire. It's going to be over. Something completely different is going to take its place. And it's going to give you the gladness that they used to have when the warrior won. Something else is going to start winning. Are you with me? For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for fire. For a child will be born to us. Not a conquering chieftain. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. So we've talked about one kind of government. And now we're talking about another kind of government. And do you think his point in telling us that this government is going to come through a child? Do you think his point is to say that it's the same kind of government as that which it rules to the fear of death? I think it's the exact opposite point. Amen. Unto us a child will be born. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Does a counselor give you the feeling of dividing spoil? Does a counselor give you the gladness of conquering? Not usually, would he? Amen. Wonderful Counselor. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of what? Of peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Amen. So, now we have two governments, don't we? We have... The government government of this world by which all the subsidiary governments reign and rule. But then we have this introduction of a completely other kind of government. But it is a government. It is a kingdom. Same same concept, amen? We're using those terms interchangeably. Amen? Amen? The power by which the governments of this world rule is simply the fear of death. Is that the power by which the government of Christ rules? No, it is not. Jesus said he came to bequeath to us a kingdom, to give us a kingdom. Amen? And he makes the church and the kingdom synonymous when he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The church. Behold, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Amen? So he makes the church and the kingdom interchangeable. They're one and the same thing. The kingdom is the rule of the king, right? And it represents, if it's a kingdom, then there is a king, and there is an order by which this kingdom is run. Would you agree? Is it every man for himself? So what I want to ask you is, what is the counter? Opposed power by which the kingdom of God, the government of Christ, is run. As opposed to that which runs the kingdoms of this world. What runs the kingdoms of this world is the fear of death. What is the power? And there will be many true answers. And I'm probably making a terrible risk by asking this question. Because I'll probably find out I got it wrong. But no, I don't think I, I do. What is the the mechanism by which the kingdom of God is run? What is the power? What represents the mandate? What makes us abide by the kingdom, the rule of the king in the government of Christ? Someone will say, love. And that is certainly true. That is the motivating force, but it is not the mandatory force. Do you understand? So let me explain why love is not a sufficient answer. If, if we say that the, the power, the equivalent power to that which runs the kingdoms of this world is love, well then it's every man's version of love, isn't it? And one man says love is to say, Lord, this will never be. You do not have to die on the cross. And another man says that is the voice of Satan because you save the things that be of man. Do you understand that there's an immediate, there's an immediate problem if we just say that it's every man's version of love for himself? you understand so somebody else will say okay well it's the word and it certainly is love and it certainly is the word but is it every man's interpretation for himself one says throw yourself down and uh, you will not dash your foot against the stone the angels will will uh, give you will bear you up so jump off the temple mount or jump off this mountain and the other says it is written thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test so we're always going to have division and disagreement as to what is the correct interpretation for the word so I've said the love it's subject to it's subject to confusion and disagreement I have said the word it's subject to confusion and disagreement those are like the law right in the in the kingdoms of this world and like selfish ambition okay but there still has to be a government that tells you uh, no you're found guilty this is what needs to be done this is what can't be done do you understand so what is it? What is the dynamic? That's the best word I can think of. What is the dynamic that makes the government of Christ real in our lives? That represents a, makes it a mandate in our lives? That makes it work in our lives? Amen. Obedience is the result of it. The spirit, amen. Faith, the fear of God. The order of God's authority. Ma'am? Yes, ma'am. Covenant commitment. These are all true. Amen? But let's just, do you, is the government of Christ real in your life? Can I, can I give an example of, of it in my life? I'm, I've got to think of one really fast. So if somebody else thinks of one... Let me try to give an example of the government of Christ in my life. Okay. This church represents, for me, this church represents the kingdom of God to me. Amen? And if, if someone were to stand up right now and say, Ossie, you're out of the spirit. I want you to sit down. Say it, Brother Howard to say that, or Brother Dan, or Brother Safri, or any number of you brothers. Would I do it? Yes, I would. In fact, if somebody stands up and says, we feel to have a work day today, do we do it? Hmm? If somebody says before the meeting, if we we don't have a, someone says we feel to have a meeting, do do we have a meeting? Yes, we do. Someone says we feel to have a work day, do we do it? Yes, we do. Someone says, be quiet and sit down, do we do it? Yes, we do. So what makes us do that? If Brother Dan tells me, Ossie, you were out of it in the way you told that story last night in the fellowship, I'm not thinking of any particular time, but I'm sure you've said this to me, but um, you were out of it in the way you told that story last night in the fellowship, uh, what do I say? Can you back that up with a firearm, Brother Dan? (laughs) He'd say you're out of it again. (laughs) But we all submit in this thing that's called the kingdom of God. Do we not? Now, the Holy Spirit moved on Peter to baptize Cornelius. But then the order of the church came into play when the 11 other apostles called Peter on the carpet, didn't they? And did Peter go and did he say, oh, forget you. I was moving in the Spirit. That's all I have to do. Huh? No. Though he was in the Spirit, he also subjected himself to their oversight, did he not? He said he was right. They said he was wrong. And there was an an intense debate about it for a while, wasn't there? During the the process of that debate, when those 11 disciples had yet to see the wisdom, hear the Holy Spirit, were they rejected of God? Those on whom the four corners of the city of gold are built, were were they rejected of God during that period? When they said, you shouldn't have baptized him, and he said, I should have, were they, were they wrong? Were they sinners? Hmm? No. Why did he go subject himself to those people? Did they threaten to revoke his license? Tell him that they were going to pull together a posse of pacifists to go arrest him? Why did, they, why did he come and subject himself to those people? What about in Acts 15 when the issue was circumcision? And there was this another convention where the elders, where there was some dispute and they all came together, are they not subjecting themselves, just like me subjecting myself to Brother Josiah, Brother Nathan, Brother Dan, or any number of you here? We do it on a daily basis, do we not? And when somebody brings to us something that is of the truth, we obey it, we submit to it. And why do we do that? Ah, what? It's because... We honor it. The power of the kingdoms of this world, the power of the government of this world, is on the outside of us, threatening to take away our life. The power of the government of Christ is on the inside of us. It is a feeling that we call honor. And if I don't have that feeling toward these brothers when they come to confront me, will I obey? So their power is only as powerful as my honor is sincere. Do you understand? So in a very real sense, we give the government of Christ its power over our lives. We elect to give it its power over our lives because we believe it's sent to us from God. But the mandate in their instruction in my life is the honor I hold for them. Now, that honor is rooted in love. It's rooted in the belief that they love me, and it's rooted in the love that I have for them, and the love that I feel coming from God through them. That honor is the only thing that makes the government, the kingdom of Christ, work. And wherever that honor starts to dissipate, to that extent, the government of Christ starts to disintegrate. Now, Can you think of any scriptures that substantiate the claim that God's government, God's activity, his power in our lives is dependent upon our honor for him? When Jesus came to Jerusalem, he was sent to that tiny sliver of land in all the giant world. He was sent to that tiny toenail of a piece of land called Israel. This is little sliver, and he confined himself to those limitations because he said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And when he came to the capital city, when he came to the climax of the purpose for which he had come, To Jerusalem, what did he do? Did he he conquer it? No, he wept over it. He wept over it in the same way that the writer of Hebrews says, don't make it difficult for those who have the rule over you, for this would be unprofitable for you. He wept over the prophet that Jerusalem was losing that day. If you had known, even you, Yerushalayim, city of peace, what really makes for your peace? For the government, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. If you had known, even you, Yerushalayim, what makes for your peace. But see now, it is hidden from your eyes. And you will no longer see my face until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what does that statement represent? To say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It represents honor returning in the hearts of God's people. He who is not going to impose himself on Jerusalem. And God's reign in our lives will never be an imposition that conquers our will. It will be an imposition that beckons our will to make a free choice of its own. Amen? That says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is honor. That is what makes for our peace. That is what institutes the government of Christ. And where there is not honor, there is no authority. There is no government of Christ and his peace has an end amen because it's of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end where his government is aborted where the reign of the king is cut short then the peace goes with it doesn't it can you think of any other times when God's power we know these scriptures that's why I'm asking just for refresher and for the new folks among us can you think of other times when God's power is inhibited not by his desire for his people but simply because of their honor or their lack thereof nazareth matthew 6 what happened there god with god all things are possible right so with god all things are possible perform some signs for us jesus you know there are some here who think that they that their problem is that God doesn't perform enough signs. I imagine if God flashed from heaven and zapped somebody with a lightning bolt, I imagine that they would have fear in their hearts at least temporarily. But they've lost all fear of God. In Nazareth when Jesus began to speak, what did the people say at first? They said, What gracious words he speaks. Gracious, meaning the grace of God, they felt flowing to them. Wow, there's grace here. There's grace in this place. We can change. We can be saved. We can be forgiven. We can say no to ungodliness. Amen. But then something else happened. What happened? They reached out and they diminished what they were at first honoring. They diminished it in this reverse magnification. Amen. And they looked at it more closely, didn't they? Is he not Joseph, Joseph's son? Are his brothers and sisters not here? Is it bad to point out that you know the man's family? Hmm? There's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. What is another word that also shares the same root as family? Familiarity. And what does it breed but contempt? Amen. So they diminished him by bringing him down to be as familiar as a a brother, as a husband, as a father, as a dad, a mom. We know him. Familiarity breeds contempt it's not a scripture, but it is a truth. Amen. Amen. And immediately, he can do no mighty works in their midst. Just that quickly. Now, there are people who wonder at times why they don't get from a certain relationship what other people get from the same relationship. Did not Jesus say that they would say in Nazareth, "Do for us the works you did in Capernaum and in Bethsaida"? And there are people who do the same thing. It's not quite so explicit, but they say, "I don't even know what they see in him. I don't even know what they get from that relationship with her. She's just my mom. She's just my sister. She's just my son. He's just my son. He's just my daughter. She's just my daughter." I don't even know. Maybe a spouse says to the husband, he has patience for everybody else, but he doesn't have patience for me. Why do you think that is? You've lost peace. And if you've lost peace, then you've lost the government of Christ that doesn't come in as a champion to conquer you, but that woos you and beckons you And asks you, can you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Why Capernaum? Why Bethsaida? And why not Nazareth? What's wrong with him? Does he not like his own family? No, it's just that Jesus said a prophet has, what, honor. Everywhere. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Why? Except because of this reverse magnification, right? This way of looking at people that allows you to be the knower instead of God and you to be the one being known by God. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just pray for a minute. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, God. Praise you, Jesus. Praise Praise you, Jesus. Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, in Jesus' name, help us come. Amen, God. Amen, God. You see, what God is trying to show us, what we're edging toward, God is trying to show us How the power of God can be released in our lives. That's what God is wanting to show us today. Before this is over, what we want to see is this incredible surge of faith rise up in our hearts that says, God's power can become real in my life. I don't have to be helpless anymore. I don't have to be pitiful anymore. I know what makes for my peace and I want it in my life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And every, the word of God is what tells us what honor looks like. Amen. It shows us What honor looks like how did Sarah honor her husband says that she honored him calling him Lord such a thought would never even cross the minds of good liberated Christians of our day and nobody's suggesting that that should be done but we're not told that by the Old Testament prophets Paul tells us that. And he says it in the context of telling wives to submit to your husbands and reverence them as to the Lord. Now when he says to reverence your husband as to the Lord, is he saying that you should pretend that your husband is a little God along with Jesus? No, he's saying don't forget that when you submit to your husband, you're submitting to God's government. And when you submit to his government, you submit to the governor. There may be an imperfect officer or an imperfect execution here and there, a task that is poorly done by this agent of that of God's government. But when he says submit to them as to the Lord, he's saying, remember that by submitting to them, you can say that you are still submitting to God. Isn't that what he's saying in Matthew 15 when he rebukes the Pharisees and he says, you forsake the commandment of God. You annul the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions. And what was the commandment of God that he quoted that they annulled? For it says you should honor your father and mother. And I'm paraphrasing, but you encourage people to do something else to take the gifts that should have gone to mom and dad and give it to something that you say is the temple, which is really just raising money for Herod. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And what does he say? In this way, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled about you when he says, this people does honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So by dishonoring their parents, they fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that they dishonored God. Does it mean that their parents were God? No, it means that the order of God is what asks you to honor your parents. And that order represents the dominion, the government, the kingdom of Christ. Amen. So there's no real claim that you are submitting to God if you do not submit to the commandments of God that govern relationships between us. children obey your parents in everything for this is right honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with promise and what is that promise but the peace of god's reign in our lives that you will live long in the land amen that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that Yahweh, your God, is giving to you. We think we honor. But if we, have, if we think that the Constitution is a, is a living and growing document, amen, and we have reinterpreted what we think honor means according to our version, our standard, Of what seems fair and right then we are just deluding ourselves Jesus said of the Pharisees these are they which do justify themselves and what did they what justification did they ever give that they didn't accompany with a scripture but again this is another example of each man's truth for himself amen there is an order that God has given even to the church Isn't that true? Didn't he say he ascended on high and he gave gifts to men and they were all co-equal? All the gifts he gave are all the same. Is that what he said? No, he even gave an order for how the gifts were to function, didn't he? Amen. For how deacons should relate to ministers and how brothers should relate to brothers and how bosses should relate to their employees and employees to their bosses. And if we lose that honor... Or if we reinterpret it according to our standard, we might justify ourselves, But the power of God will not be in our life. And that is the proof positive that we do not honor him. The power to change. Somebody speaks a word to me and it, it just doesn't work. They speak a word anointed from the word of God. And it doesn't change me. Why doesn't it change me? There's only one reason. Because you don't know what makes for your peace. There's only one reason, because he's a prophet who you don't have any more honor for. As God has spoken to us for forty something years, the last book of the Old Testament was a rebuke at how they had come to dishonor God. He said, "If I am am I not a great king?" says Yahweh. Where is my honor? He says, if I am a father, where is my honor? Amen. And this challenge that they did not know how to honor God was his last indictment before he closed the book of the Bible and was silent, silent. He could not do many mighty works. That is what ends the reign of God. That is what stops it when nothing else can, when there's nobody to stand in the gap and say, God, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, then it's silent. And the grace of God and the glory of God and the power of God on a church comes to an end. Just by depleting, just by taking away that sense of honor that ought to be there. You don't have to be attacking God. You don't have to be actively spewing blasphemies against God. You don't have to be saying, I hate you, Father. I despise you, Mother. Just stop having honor. Just succumb to this sin of omission whereby you feel okay losing the feeling you once had toward God and those he sent in your life. Honor is not something you do It is a state of being. It's something you are. Amen. It is a condition of the heart. These do honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What what God wants is for something to come from the heart, which indicates love, doesn't it? It's an honor that comes out of love. It says, I love my master. Amen. It's the honor Elisha had for Elijah. This Devotion is something rising up inside of him. Wouldn't let him be put away. Wouldn't let him remain behind. Amen. It's the honor Peter found for Jesus when Jesus asked him, Will you go also? Where else can we go, God? We can't imagine a life devoid of the Spirit. We can't imagine a walk where we never heard the Word. Amen. Amen. Where else can we go, God? Amen. We stand in his presence this morning and we feel the glory of God filling this place, this place, this this temple. I am telling you, you need to go and try to find another place where the glory of God is resting because you're going to look far and wide before you feel in a thousand churches what you just felt this morning. Go visit them, please. Please. Remind yourself of how lifeless and dead they are. And then when you come back, don't say their gracious words only then to reduce it down to something you don't have to honor, something familiar. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just pray for a minute. Praise you, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus, Jesus, God. Jesus, Jesus, God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, God. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus. Brother Zafrir was just uh, reminding me of where the centurion said, you don't need to come to my house. Only speak the word. What was he doing? He was unshackling the government of Christ. He was unlocking the power of God. Only speak the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus called it great faith, but it was great honor, wasn't it? Just like he said, a prophet has honor everywhere. You know, He could not do many mighty works because of their unbelief, for a prophet has honor. Amen? Unbelief is dishonor, and honor is faith, and faith is honor. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So when the Word of God says, through the writer of Hebrews, submit to those who have the rule over you, ask yourself, who has the rule over you? And what is that rule? It is simply the honor you would give them that they can speak the Word of God into your life. Submit to those who have the rule over you and be obedient to them obedient nobody's going to tell me what to do okay well then you're antichrist when you decide what god is telling you and you're the only one who receives you receive input only from yourself concerning what is god's will certainly all of us are supposed to rely most heavily on our direct relationship with god amen but if i say that i can hear from god only from myself then what am i saying I'm saying that he's given me the spirit without measure and that I am complete in him and that I have the mind of Christ. That isn't what the Bible says. It says he gives the spirit without measure, but he's only given me a measure, a portion. And it says that we have the mind of Christ and that we are complete. Complete is a one thing, but the many are the one. We are one. We are complete in him. I am not complete. We are complete in Him. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Submit to those who have the rule over you and be obedient to them. What do you do with that scripture? What do you do with that scripture? You say, Well, my pastor's not perfect. What kind of imperfect are you talking about? Has he asked you to sin? Well, come show us where and when we'll take action. What kind of imperfect are you talking about? Has he called you to account? Even though you may be the apostle Peter? Well, then he's doing his job. Because it is God's perfect will and perfect order that the flesh be challenged until something from the Holy Spirit can come forth. Peter needed to be challenged. Peter needed to be questioned so that it would be proven again to hold the voice of the Spirit. He needed to trust his brothers. He needed to believe that when God moved and God spoke, they would listen. Those are the brothers I'm part of that have the rule over my life. God will hold us to account. Do not seek to be teachers for you will be judged by a more severe standard, to a more severe standard, be not many teachers. God will hold us to account. Did he not hold Saul to account? And did Saul's actions, did that give David the liberty to dishonor him? And the office he filled in the kingdom of God? Saul was rejected by God. Did it give David the right to touch the Lord's anointed? What does the word of God say you should show honor to? Does he say honor one another? He certainly does. What does he say about those who teach and preach the word to you? He says show them double honor. Double honor? That means you're supposed to have a different attitude? You're supposed to treat your pastor, your minister, in a different way than you treat your chums? Amen. In the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the order, right? He begins by saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Amen? So he was telling these Corinthians... If you want Christ to be a reality in your life, you need to follow me as I follow Christ. What does that mean? That means Paul was part of Christ. Amen? It's the same thing as he meant when he said in Romans 10, do not say who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down because that's what we all want, don't we? We all want to follow Christ. We all want to say I am of of Christ, right? Don't say who's going to bring Christ down or bring him up. For well, the word is nigh unto you, even in your mouth and in your heart, the word that we're preaching. So how did they get Christ in their life? By listening to the word that was being preached. Amen? And so he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And then he goes on in the later in the chapter and he talks about the order of the family, the order of God's kingdom. Amen? And he says, the head of the, man, the, head of the woman is man. The head of man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. And he says that we have to keep this this order. Doesn't this represent an order? Amen. He says we have to keep this order because he wants it to go well with us. And every time God asks us to honor, it's for our benefit. Every single time that it may go well with you, it's for our benefit. It's so that the grace and love and power of God will not be cut off from our lives. So he says here, he gives, an, he gives an order. And then he warns, a woman shall not have her head shorn. She shall have a covering on her head. And he says her hair is given to her as that covering, that kafali. Amen. And he says that the reason that she should submit to her husband, kafali, the, the, the very word, denotes origins. Amen. And he says it's because woman came from man. Man came through the the word that is Christ. Amen. And Christ comes from God. So he says that she has to have a covering on her head, and the covering represents the authority of her husband. And why does he say that she has to have this? We're coming full circle now, brothers and sisters. Why does he say that she has to have this? Because of the angels. Why? Because of the angels. Somebody said they're the guardians of God's honor. Is that right? Amen. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, it says, God will return in his majesty with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, who shall, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of God. Amen. And this word punishment is temero, is that how you say it? And it means guardians of God's honor. The angels are always associated with two things, either advocacy on on the part of God's kingdom and his people, or punishment because they are guardians of God's honor, of his honor to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Be blessing and glory and honor and power forever he's on the throne but we have to say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord we have to recognize and love the glory of God amen we have to honor him and his power will be a reality in our lives amen so the angels he says that she has to have this sign of authority on her head because of the angels the angels are watching over God's order as guardians of his honor. Amen. What did the Lord say to Moses in Exodus? I believe it's the 20th chapter, when he is sending them into the wilderness. He said, Behold, I send my angel ahead of you. Be careful to do all that he says, for he will not forgive your sins nor blot out your transgressions. Behold, I have put my name in him. Be careful to do all that he says. Amen? So many times, so, so the, this angel that went ahead of Israel was no doubt the angel who unsheathed his sword and came near to Joshua. Amen? He was ahead of them just before they went into Jericho. This angel, many times when it says God did this and God said that and Yahweh told him to do this the Lord said to do that, we know that the angel has the name of God in him. He's like the deputy sheriff, right? We say the sheriff is at the door, but we don't actually mean that Parnell McNamara, the only elected sheriff, is at the door. We, we mean one of his deputies who bears the authority of his name is at the door. And there's, there, are, there is an angelic host that bears the authority of God's name. And they've already seen his order vindica- uh, vitiated once, haven't they? In the Garden of Eden, they saw it inverted, didn't they? But now God is striving to establish His kingdom on the earth. And His angels are zealous to make sure that this this new kingdom has a chance. Amen. So they are watching over God's Word. The eyes of the Lord, which are called the angels, roam to and fro across the face of the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. That's one aspect that they play. We're here to help you win Jericho, Joshua, except he doesn't say that. He says, I'm not your servant, I'm God's servant. And I'm here to make sure you stay in order. I'm, sure, I'm here to make sure you still have honor. Take off your shoes for the ground where you stand. It's holy. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Why? Why does, does the, the Lord in the, in the apocalypse, in the, in the revelations, the book of revelations, why does he write each one of the letters? How does it begin? To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, I know your deeds. Amen. To the angel of the church... Why does he write it? Why does he address the angel? He's certainly addressing the church. Amen? But why does, he, why does he carbon copy the letter to the angel? Because the angel is God's agent on the ground. And he is there to release supernatural power on behalf of God's people. Or he is there to pull back God's covering that judgment may come. Change or I'm going to remove your lampstand. Repent or I'm going to take away your lampstand. Isn't that what he says to Ephesus? There are angelic powers who are watching over God's word. And what God is doing on the face of the earth in this place at this time is unprecedented. And I want to put you on notice. I feel like the Lord would put you on notice today. Don't Find yourself opposing the order of God because you may be finding yourself facing off with someone who is not your friend or your foe, but who is on the Lord's side. This angel who went ahead of Moses was there many times to bring about this judgment, this lack of forgiveness, wasn't he? Amen. Such as in the time when Korah rebelled, How many rose up with Korah? 250. Wow, that must have really been scary. Oh, God, the church is falling to pieces. Look at all the saints who have left. Look at all the mighty spiritual warriors who used to lead us in praise. Look look how they've left. No, these are men devoid of the Spirit and full of arrogance. Korah, on the other hand, was someone of great significance. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the, the elders, amen. And he got 250 leaders to join with him in his rebellion. And what was his accusation against Moses? How did he say it? Moses, you have gone too far. You have gone too far. And the next comment was to say, the whole community is holy. You're not better than us. Hopefully the whole community was holy. And Moses never said he was better than them. But God had called Moses and made him his man in that kingdom. What did Moses say to them? You know what he said? He said, You Levites have gone too far. He used their same words. It's a scary thing to say, isn't it? Point your knowing finger in the face of the Lord's anointed and tell him, You have gone too far. It's a scary thing to say, isn't it? Because maybe God's pointing his finger right back and saying, no, in doing so, you have gone too far. What did Moses say? It is against Aaron and I that you have sinned. No, he said, it is against Yahweh that you and your followers have banded together. 250 with him. He and his household, his wives, his children, and the men of his household banded with him, along with 250 leaders. And they accused him, you have gone too far. And he said, it is against Yahweh. He knew their hearts. It wasn't Moses' problems. And Moses had problems, you know that? He didn't make it into the promised land. He struck the rock. There were things that he did that were not right. But they didn't hate him for the things he did that were not Right? They hated him for the way in which he legitimately expressed an authority that was from above. And what did Moses say? He said, you have sinned against Yahweh. He said, who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? He said, we're just flesh and blood. We don't have some power by ourselves. Grumbling against us is really just a joke. Call it for what it is. You're, 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 you're sinning against Yahweh. Then he summoned Dathan and Abiram, and he said to him, he summoned Dathan and Abiram, and they said to him, we will not come. He said, you, you, you took us out of the land flowing with milk and honey, and now you want to lord it over us. You haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards Will you gouge out the eyes of these men? No, we will not come. What they were saying is, it's obvious to us. We'd have to have our eyes gouged out not to see the obvious. That the promises you make are just not being realized. There's problems here. Will you gouge out the eyes of us? We're not coming to you. There are serious problems here. Moses said, okay. All of you come tomorrow with your censers, and we will all stand before Yahweh. Don't show me your words. Show me your glory. Show me the fruit. Show me the witness of the Spirit in your life, and your testimony. We'll all stand before Yahweh together. And the Lord is going to choose. It says, The glory of the Lord appeared before all the assembly. And the Lord said to Moses, Separate yourself, you and Aaron, from these men and from all the congregation. He wasn't just going to kill Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and all the 250 with them. He was going to kill... every. This angel was going to kill everybody except Moses and Aaron. Why? Why does this angel feel this way? Hmm. Because these... Godly angels have been involved in a cosmic struggle since Lucifer fell and the angels with him, and they have been fighting, trying to maintain the order of God by whatever means possible and the people of God and today the church represents their best chance of seeing God overcome. Amen it's their best chance. What is the church except? that which is supposed to testify to principalities and powers and rulers. And they will align with us and they will fight on our behalf, not because of us, but because they serve in the Lord's army. Amen. But when they see a great promise coming forth and then they see it about to be destroyed, they burn with indignation. Isn't that how it happened with Zechariah when he dishonored the word of God? I got a solution for people who have lots of comments and questions about what God just spoke, you're going to be mute. Aaron and Moses, the Lord says that they treated the Lord, they treated Yahweh with contempt. By challenging Moses, he says they treated Yahweh with contempt. Moses and Aaron interceded for the people. They begged. They fell on their faces and begged God for the people. Isn't that ironic? That the people falling on their faces, it's not the buddies who talk about the problems of the church. It's Moses and Aaron. It's their pastor who they're talking about behind his back. God, please bring him to repentance. Please, God, don't let him throw away his life. He was like a son to me. When have you wept over the souls of people who left God? When have you stayed up all night unable to sleep? Some of us have. God, could I have done anything different? Reaching out to them, calling them. All the calls, of course, being declined. That's what Moses and Aaron did. They're down with their faces face down on the ground. Please don't destroy your people, God. And the Lord heard him, and the ground opened up and Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and all their families and their little ones and everything was swallowed up. He said, if they die like any other man, then God has not chosen me. But he said, if they die an unusual death, let it be a witness to you. And what happened the very next day? You know what happened the very next day? The people came trembling into the presence of God and repented of all their sins. Is that what happened? No, because to the hard-hearted, anything can happen. And they don't see it. They don't feel it. The problem is inside. What happened the very next day? You know what happened? The people grumbled and said that the punishment against Korah was too harsh. As if Moses had opened up the ground and swallowed him. I mean, you got to know, it's human nature. He said it was too harsh. So then fire broke out against the 250, and all that was left of them was their censers. And those were picked from the ashes and hammered into a covering for the ark as a permanent testimony. He said it was the only thing consecrated in their hands. They weren't consecrated, but he said their thing, was their censers were consecrated. So they picked their offering, their censers out of the ashes and hammered them and covered the Ark of the Covenant with them. And then the people grumbled and said, it's too harsh. So 14,700 of them died of a plague that, that same next day. And what happened then? The Lord said, Moses said to Aaron, quick, take your censer and run through the camp and make atonement for them. So here this man, who seems to be the brunt of all their accusations, he grabs his censer and he's running through the camp of Israel. Hundreds of thousands of people. And he's praying and making atonement for the people. Repenting, begging forgiveness for the sins they've committed against him. And the plague was stopped. And then what happened? The Lord says, well, my dad told me this. I'd never seen this before. The Lord says to Moses, Go and ask for the staff, from, from, for the, the staff of a man from every tribe. The staff represented the, the authority of the man. So he goes and gets the 12 staves of Israel. Amen? And every man puts his name on the staff, writes his name on the staff. And Aaron represents the tribe of Levi. Because it says they had rebelled against him. So Aaron writes his name, the tribe of Levi, on his staff. And they put their staff before the tent of meeting. They all put their staffs there. And Moses says, In the morning, you're going to see that if one of these staffs has sprouted, then God has borne witness of whom he has chosen to lead this people. We can all have our authority. But is there any life left in it? Is there any life of the Spirit left in it? And so it says, They put all the staffs before the tent of the meeting, and the next morning they came to see. And all their authority was still dead. But when they picked up the staff of Aaron, it said it had not only sprouted, but it had budded. It had not only bud, but it had blossomed, and it had borne uh, almonds. Amen. God was saying, my purpose is still alive and my order is still alive. Amen. And this is my sanction. This is my confirmation that the spirit that is life is still on it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen, 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 amen. When you lose honor, you lose consecration. And when you lose honor and consecration, you have no power of God left in your life. You have no sprout, you have no bud, you have no blossom, and you have no fruit. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's like Samson. Amen. When his Nazir was shorn from his head. Amen. His consecration. What set him apart? Amen. How did he get that? That Nazir. How did he get that? That consecration. God had spoken to his parents. And for a season, he received the word of God as coming through them. Just like Adam and Eve. When Eve was in the garden, did the, Lord, did the Lord say, You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge between good and evil? Did he say that to Adam and Eve? No, he didn't. He only said it to Adam. And so when the devil came, the question he asked Eve was, He said, Did God really say? Now, the only way she could have known what God said was through whom? her husband. So what he was asking is, can your husband really hear from God? Does he really know what he's talking about? Is God really leading this family through the husband? Or can we get a different order going here? Why do you think the serpent didn't go to Adam? Hmm. Amen. He saw weakness and inclination toward deception it's funny how the serpents, they never go to the strongest. They don't sit down with Brother Zafrir, brother Howard. They don't, they don't even sit down with us and, and make these accusations. They go to the weakest, to those with the least fruit, with no bud, with no sprout in their lives. And they get, well, not 250, but maybe five, you know. And that's some sort of proof. No, it's not. No, it's not. Same thing with Samson. God had spoken to his parents. So in a sense, his consecration was a direct honor to his parents, wasn't it? Amen. Why did he lose it? Why did he lose the honor? Why did he lose the consecration? Well, he lost the consecration because he lost the honor. What takes the place of honoring those outside of us? pride in who we are. Amen. It always amazes me that we say that Samson was deceived by Delilah. Samson was not deceived by Delilah. Samson was deceived by Samson. Every single time he told Delilah, she showed exactly what she was going to do. She told the Philistines. Do you remember those three times? And the fourth time, it wasn't that he thought, well, this time she won't tell him. That's silly. (laughs) Of course she was going to tell him. It was that he forgot where his power came from. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. He began to treat as a common thing, the blood of the covenant, by which we are sanctified. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. He forgot. He lost that sense of, of all that Joshua had when he stood before the angel and trembled on holy ground. Amen. And the promise of God for us today is that if we can restore the sense of honor for those whom God has asked us to honor, then the result is going to be that the hair is going to start to grow out. The honor, the consecration is going to start to cover our lives again. And the result of that. It's going to be that the power of God is going to visit us. It's going to become a, a reality in our lives again. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus, God. Hallelujah. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Amen, 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 God. Amen, 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 God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Didn't Samuel love Saul? Didn't Samuel love Saul? But Saul was like Samson. There was a time when he honored Samuel. When Samuel said, wait here for me, and he did. When Samuel said, meet me there, and he did. But then there came a time when he just didn't need Samuel that much. And Samuel said, don't go up without me. Wait for me. But Samuel was late. Samuel was imperfect. Samuel didn't do everything right. Saul was the king of Israel. And his minister told him, don't go up without me. Did he have the power to disobey? Did Samuel kill him when he he disobeyed? No, but what happened? The anointing of God lifted from him and sought a man who had a heart after God's. Amen. A man after God's own heart. Amen. Saul continued to honor him with his lips, didn't he? But David honored him with his heart. And for all his failures, he never lost that, did he? Look at the way he responded to Nathan. David never lost his honor. David always kept that trembling before God. Amen. Amen. And Saul was grieved at losing the relationship. I still want to be friends. You know, can we call every now and again? I'll send you birthday texts. I'll pretend that I haven't turned my back on God. Even though John, the Apostle John said, whoever does not receive the instruction of this epistle, take note of him and do not associate with him or even say good morning to him or else you share in his sin. No, 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 don't. don't you guys take everything way too seriously. Let's stay buddies. I want to go among the elders and I will be blessed again. Please bless me, Samuel. Don't let everybody think that I'm an outcast. If I'm an outcast, I might really start to feel that I've separated myself from the presence of God. And I might actually come to repentance. (sighs) Don't do that. Pad the way. Make it as easy and soft as possible. And I won't change. I'll just continue to feel sorry for myself and blame everybody else. Amen. He grabbed hold of Samuel's cloak, Samuel's robe, and Samuel ripped his emotions and affections and loyalty, ripped it away from him. I do not savor the things that be of man more than the things that be of God. I will weep for you, but I am not going to be caught and ensnared in this lie, this deception of human love. Ripped it away and he said, in this same way, God has torn the kingdom out of your grasp. And he has given it to another. Just like Judas. You say, but he had something. He he had something. He had so many gifts. Yeah. He had a calling on his life. He was supposed to be one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the kingdom was still ripped from his grasp. As they said in Acts 1, another will take his place Somebody else will rise up who is a man after God's own heart. Somebody else will come who sees what God is doing and can appreciate his word. Amen. And they're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. And many mighty works are going to be done in the same spot that you now occupy. Somebody else is going to stand there, and they're going to do many mighty works through God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I ask you to take this word into our hearts, God. Lord, I rebuke any malaise, amen, any tiredness of the flesh. I ask you to take this word deep into our hearts. And yes, let it cut, let it penetrate, let it hurt where it needs to hurt. But God, let it bring us faith, amen, that we can change, that we can have your power in our lives, Amen, that we can repent and restore our first love and our first honor. We can feel the way we once felt when we trembled in your presence, God. Take it deep inside of us. Purge from this church all the mockers. Amen, all the dishonored, God. Unify us in one, Jesus. To him who sits on the throne uh, and unto the Lamb.